0: faked you out twice today got up and went back down all right if you're new here or new to the valley what we like to do is go through books of the bible and try to get a sense of what god has wanted to communicate to us through his holy word and through the divinely inspired author and we are up to verse 35 in mark we're in chapter one and we're going to do verses 35 through 39 of that chapter Let me catch you up a little bit. Mark writes to answer one primary question, and that question is, who is Jesus? And he answers the question in verse one of chapter one, saying that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the Son of God. Mark then sets out to prove his thesis by walking us through a mosaic or a highlight reel, if you will, of Jesus's life. The narrative shifts quickly from one event to another to bolster Mark's argument for who Jesus is. Last week, we learned that Jesus has authority in every realm. He's authoritative in every realm. We said that he was Lord of all realms and, in fact, Lord of all. This week, we're going to see the kingdom of God continue to advance as Jesus moves. Jesus moves that's the one big thing this morning that we're going to try to wrap our minds around and think on this week is that jesus moves and so should we jesus moves and so should we i just kept it at jesus moves because that's really easy to remember right just two words jesus moves we're going to walk through two sections today that highlight that not three just two that's a little different too Uh, And so we're going to see Jesus move into prayer, and we're going to see Jesus move in obedience to the Father's will. Before we do that, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your grace this morning. We thank you that you give it lavishly. Pray that you would pour out your love and your mercy onto us, that you would uh, put us in a gentle disposition That you would soften whatever hardness there is to us right now. And uh, let us be ready to receive your word this morning. Father, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Overwhelm us with your presence. And help us to soak in a foretaste of heaven as we are gathered together to celebrate you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So Jesus moves into prayer. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. And he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I love how the front end of this verse, uh, it sounds a little bit more colloquial than literary. It sounds like, perhaps, since Mark was Peter's interpreter, that Peter's kind of telling the events to Mark, kicked back. He's got a a drink in his hand. He's recalling everything that happened. He said, you know, hey, we woke up that next morning. Jesus had said, follow us. And and he had already gotten up and gone off. I mean, he must have gotten up super early and been super quiet because I, I had no idea he was even gone. I do think it's a little funny that Jesus tells them, uh, hey, follow me. And he sneaks out, right? Sneaks off by himself early in the morning. He intentionally goes into the wilderness, into this desolate place, fellowship with the Father. He separates himself from all distraction so that he can pray. I think it's interesting to note that this is one of just three times that Mark records the Lord Jesus praying. Does it here also following the feeding of the 5,000, which we learn from John's account is where the people are trying to take him and make him king by force? And then the third time in Mark's gospel is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays that the Father might take the cup away from him. All three occur at night and in solitary places amid a whirlwind of activity. Jesus is seeking a still point in prayer with the Father. And even though we only have three recorded prayers in Mark, I think it's safe to say that prayer was a normal pattern in Jesus' life. So I'm going to ask three questions of this verse. Why does Jesus pray? Why do we need to pray? And how can we pray? First, why does Jesus pray? Simply point, because he loves God. Jesus loves the Father and is resolved to have intimate fellowship with him, even if it means getting up early making it a priority the time jesus has an intimate fellowship with the father is worth losing a little bit of sleep it's of supreme value to him i think relationships of love often cost us convenience and they usually call us out of our comfort out of ourselves you know, when I was at seminary, I had the privilege of living with, uh, with three other gentlemen, which is just a joy. And uh, one of which uh, uh, is Nathaniel Simmons, who's been here to preach. Perhaps you remember him. And uh, when I lived with Nathaniel, he, w- he was single and he was in his early 30s. And so I thought he was kind of weird. But uh, eventually he-, he came across this love interest of him and, and some things started to change. He-, he started to act a little bit differently, right? You see, he when he became interested in this single lady, in order to build intimacy with her, she, she's now his wife, I should mention, he gave up many conveniences, many of the, much of the time he would spend with me and, and the other roommates, and he did things that were, that were unusual, uh, like, for example, he read the Twilight Trilogy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with these books, but that should cause you to giggle a little bit. Uh, They're like some kind of vampire teenage romance thing, I guess. Uh, But but at any rate, it's not something he would normally read. But he picked it up because then, you know what, they had something to talk about. They were reading the Twilight books together. He's, you know, he's sneaky and smart. So they they read those books together. You know, another thing, at one point he picked up knitting. He wanted to to knit her a hat. It came out too small. It's really funny. Do feel free to bring all this up the next time you, you see him. Uh, don't worry. We, we berated him accordingly, mocked him about his knitting and his reading. But I guess he got the last laugh because you know what? He ended up married uh, to his wife, with a girl that would become his wife. And the point here is is to illustrate that building intimacy requires stepping outside of ourselves and orbiting around the other. Let me state it differently. Building intimacy requires us to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves and to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, Jesus builds intimacy with us by making our interest his interest, by becoming like us, dying for us, and resurrecting before us so that we can resurrect after him. Jesus identifies with us in our sins so we can identify with him in his righteousness. He stepped out of looking inward solely on himself, and he looked to your need. And that was a need to have your sins forgiven. But Jesus not only builds intimacy with us, but also here with his Father through prayer. It's this beautiful picture we get. Jesus, God the Son, prays to God the Father by God the Holy Spirit. And he's building intimacy. And we get that rare glimpse into our Trinitarian God, right? He's making sure that heartbeats are one. He's revolving around God the Father. It's a beautiful picture picture and it gives us a picture of what we called a few weeks ago the dance right the trinity dancing around one another concerned with one another it's this perfect picture of community and of love and of harmony and of peace and it's this perfect peace this perfect community this perfect harmony that jesus calls us into when he calls us into relationship with himself And he invites us to share in that when we pray. So that's how I would answer the the second question. Why do we need to pray? To build intimacy. To make God's interest our interest. To communicate with him. So that our lives are in rhythm with his will. So our heartbeat is his heartbeat. I think prayer means resolving to have deeper intimacy with God. It requires stepping out of ourselves and orbiting around Jesus. It doesn't require that you read Twilight, but it might require that you read your Bible, right? We need to pray not to fulfill an obligation, but to satisfy a yearning for Jesus. I think we ought to be like young lovers in what I call the the honeymoon phase of the relationship. If you've been involved in these types of romantic relationships, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's the period of time when the guy and the gal both swoon over one another, nauseatingly so most times. It's that point when all those quirks and oddities are endearing. Oh, he snorts when he laughs. It's so cute. She squeezes the toothpaste from the top. That's just adorable. It's that time before reality hits both parties and they're willing to do almost anything to spend time together. The thoughts are on one and is on the other all the time, constantly thinking of one another. You know, they've got the flower out. He loves me. He loves me not. There's almost an obsession there's a constant seeking out of one another. Communication is open. and seems like the relationship is, is easy. It's coming easy. That's before reality strikes, right? Some of you might be in this phase. I don't know, but uh, it's going to end eventually. Sorry. <laughs> the honeymoon phase gives way to reality. And we discover that because of sin and selfishness, Loving relationships are really, really hard work. True love requires covenant and commitment and repentance and forgiveness and I'm sorry and it's okay. We discover our selfishness because all of a sudden that that laugh that was so cute, that snort, becomes embarrassing or annoying. I wish he wouldn't snort like a pig when he laughs. Is it really that hard to squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom? It makes my life easier when I go to put toothpaste on my toothbrush. It's not from personal experience or anything like that. (laughs) See, our motive for prayer, it should be a deep longing for Jesus. and, And many times, hopefully it is. Hopefully you long to be in relationship with Jesus. And so you're drawn to prayer continually. But let's have a time of confession truth is if we're honest if we take down that christian veneer of everything's perfect all the time and you know i got up at 3 a.m and i prayed for two hours and then i had my own like praise and worship time with the lord for for about an hour and that was all you know before six o'clock in the morning and then i just got my day started and everything is just perfect 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 if we get rid of that veneer and admit that we have trouble and that everything's not always perfect that there's real suffering in our lives and that we have real need The truth is is that praying is often very, very hard. And just like our relationships with one another, our relationship with God is affected negatively by our sin. Prayer becomes hard. You know, there there are seasons in life when prayer for, for many of us has become almost extinct, or at least very low on our list of priorities, if not missing. You know, prayer, I think it's because prayer is not easy. You don't always get warm fuzzies when you do it, or immediate satisfaction, or this mountaintop experience. But what you do get when you pray is you get to communicate with God Almighty. What you do get when you pray is change, not necessarily to your circumstances, but to your heart. And when you do this, you will move from seeking some kind of existential, super spiritual experience to truly seeking Jesus and what he wants for you. Truly seeking to be like him. Instead of wanting him to give you what you want. God will move your heart away from a childish liking of him into a childlike faith in him. And a covenant love for him. Praying with faith is not begging to be swept up into some miraculous experience. Praying with faith is believing God's revealed word, taking hold of his covenant commitment to it and asking him to keep it. Prayer quite simply asks God to accomplish what he's promised. See, our goal in prayer should to be to have intimate—I'm sorry deeper intimacy with God. We should pray both when we do and when we do not feel like it. After all, a lot of times in life, our feelings can mislead us. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. So I think a better practice is to trust God's word and do as Paul says. That's pray at all times. I think then we must ask, how can we pray? What are some ways we can do it practically? As I've mentioned before, I think something really practical we can do is you take out a sheet of paper, you fold it hot dog style, hamburger style, whatever. Uh, You do it eventually so that there comes out to be seven or eight sections. And you write somebody's name in the top part. and Then you write like whatever verse of the Bible you're planning on studying that week. And then you wake up in the morning. How am I going to pray? Oh, I'm praying uh, for Bill today. And uh, I'm going to pray that he does a, a good job of keeping his mind on the things of the Lord. And uh, I'm reading in Ephesians 2 about uh, the gospel, how we were dead in our sins. And God has stepped in and saved us from that. And so it just gives you an outline to pray. That's something you can do. Uh, I think another really practical thing you can do is take your bulletin home. There's all kinds of people and names and places and things on there to pray with you. Just take a handful each day and, and you know, cross them off your list and, and pray for them on down through. I think another thing that I've practiced recently is doing what uh, John Piper calls praying in concentric circles. He, He writes this. Consider praying in concentric circles from your own soul outward to the world. This is my regular practice. I pray for my own soul first, not because I'm more deserving than others, but because if God doesn't awaken and strengthen and humble and fill my own soul, then I can't pray for anybody else's. So I plead with the Lord every morning for my own soul's perseverance and purification and power. Then I go to the next concentric circle, my family, and I pray for each one of them by name. Then I go to the next concentric circle, the staff and the elders of Bethlehem. That's John's church. And third, then I pray for you, Bethlehem Baptist Church. That's, that's his church. And I, and I go on from there to different concerns and groups at different times. Our missionaries, our denomination, its schools, the Baptist Convention, evangelicalism in general. The church around the world, especially the suffering church. The wider circles include the city and the state and the nation and the cultural and social issues of the world. Can't pray for everything every time. So there need to be differences. And your heart will dictate much of your burden and how you pray. And I think that's really practical, right? That's one you can just think of while, you know, you're walking about and going throughout your day. Praying for myself, for my family, for my church, for the gospel in the world. I hope that these practical steps steps can help you pray. But ultimately, they're going to be of no use to you if you don't set aside time to pray. If you don't make it a priority, I mean, do you set aside time to pray? Have you considered what time of day is best for you to spend in prayer? Is it in the morning? Is it in the evening? Is it in the afternoon? Jesus made time for it, and he was probably a little bit busier than we were at this point in time. If you're too busy to pray, I would argue that that is sin that needs to be repented of. Jesus moves into prayer and in obedience to the Father's will. Even though Simon, Peter, and the disciples don't necessarily like it. Read with me verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Simon and the company pursued Jesus, The the Greek word here uh, kind of connotes or means it carries this idea with it of hunted. It's looking for. It occurs ten times in Mark and in each instance it carries a negative idea with it. The first two occurrences refer to interference with Jesus and obstruction to his ministry. Its next two refer to disbelief and faithlessness. And the remaining occurrences refer to attempts to kill Jesus. They're seeking to kill Jesus. Seeking has this idea as an attempt to determine and control rather than submit and follow. So basically, Simon and the guys are hunting Jesus down like a parent looking for their child in Walmart, right? Or a Chuck E. Cheese. It's not where he's supposed to be. He's wandered off. And once they, they find him, the, the sense of what they're saying is, where have you been what are you doing wasting time out here by yourself don't you know that everyone is looking for you we're building a following here jesus you don't have time for things like prayer silly i don't know about you but i I see myself and simon peter here it seems like he's almost rebuking jesus right He's trying to tell Jesus the best way to go about life and the best way to go about ministry. Are are we all guilty of this at some points? I mean, nobody ever says it out loud, but don't we often think that our plans or our strategies are superior to God's own? No, no, God, I'll be better off at this job. No, no, God, I'll be better if you give me more money. No, no, God, I know that's what you say to do, but I think my way is a little bit better. God, I know you, I know you say that in the Bible, but I think you must have got it wrong. The rest of the culture has it right. This, this truth must be a cultural one rather than a transcendent one. God, what were you thinking letting this happen to me? God, what were you thinking doing that? Why didn't you do it this way? This view of our own plans and our own will as superior to God's plan and God's will is the essence of sin. Sin is self-centeredness. It's thinking our way is better than God's way. It's thinking you're smarter than God. I think Peter highlights our own sinfulness in the form of worry here i don't know why i was drawn to it i I feel like he's worried about jesus he's like look we're trying to build this brand we're trying to build this kingdom and you're out here praying early in the morning no we have to have to go back we have to keep healing you know worry is is thinking god will get it wrong worry is thinking god will get it wrong and it's close sister bitterness is thinking that god got it wrong Peter is thinking that Jesus is getting it all wrong. Jesus has the crowds, but now he needs to keep them. Doesn't doesn't Jesus see this? He's got to keep the crowds. Peter and the others don't seem to grasp the necessity of prayer. And often neither do we. See, intimate fellowship with God in prayer fuels the Christian life. One on one time spent with God reading his word, praying his word, meditating on his word, builds our relationship with him. Strengthens our understanding of grace. It rewrites our need for the gospel on our hearts. It rekindles our affections. Prayer with Jesus brings us into deeper fellowship with him. It makes us more like him fuels our relationship with God and it drives our ministry because it's in prayer that our hearts are aligned with God's heart. Prayer is essential to everything we do as Christians. You want to become more like God? Pray more. You want your church to grow? Pray more and share the gospel. You want to see the miraculous? Pray. Mules, everything. Do you pray? Do you understand its vital importance? Or do you dismiss it as unnecessary, as tertiary, as an extra, unimportant? Verse 38, And then he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Peter and the disciples just came to Jesus and basically told him, Hey, man, we got momentum. Crowds are coming. Everyone is looking for you. Let's sign some endorsements deal, some endorsement deals, bro. Let's uh, let's get on the cover of Time magazine. Let's get on the Wheaties box. Let's sign a deal with Nike. You know, let's build the brand. And Jesus responds by saying no. Let's go to other towns and preach there also. They're telling Jesus, hey, our church is too full. Let's, let's do a building project. Get thousands upon thousands in here. They're saying no, we must go to other towns and preach there also. The disciples were content to stay where they were already comfortable and already successful But Jesus knew his purpose was to move the message forward in obedience to the Father's will. Jesus knew his purpose was to advance the kingdom of God through prayer and preaching. Again, I see us in the disciples here. We often don't want to move on to the next thing or into the next town. We're content with how things are and how we've always done it. Because things are fine the way they are. They're exceedingly comfortable and unchallenging. They don't ask anything of us. But friends, the gospel calls us to be involved. Calls us to be involved in kingdom building. Not building our own kingdom or our own churches, but building the kingdom of God by faithfully proclaiming the gospel in our homes, in our fellowship here together, in our community, in our nation, and in our world. Our purpose, our mission is to advance the kingdom of God through prayer and through preaching. Paul lays out a formula for this in Romans 10, picking it up at verse 13, he says this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see, all of us, every man has this problem that the gospel addresses. It's the problem of sin. We're guilty of being self-centered, of believing that we're smarter than God, of building the meaning of our lives, building our identity in things other than Jesus. We're sinners separated by our sin from a holy God. And all of us in our sin rebel against God. It's a rebellion against His way and we choose our way. This makes us His enemies. We are enemies with God. The church is made up of former enemies of God. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you have set yourself up as God's enemy. You're guilty. Because God is a just God, He must punish sin. And rightfully, to to tell you like it is early on, he could have just killed all human beings all at once, right? Could have done it, and it would have been righteous and good. And it would have ended all evil. Would have ended all suffering. All he had to do was eliminate man. But see, God, God didn't do that. He chose to have mercy on us. And to preserve his justice at the same time. And he did this by taking on flesh and becoming a man, living a perfect life, and dying a perfect death. You see, Jesus is our stand-in, and He exchanges with us His perfect life for our imperfect life. He substitutes His death for our death. At the cross, Jesus is taking what we deserve and giving us what He deserves. It's the great exchange, His life for our lives. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, being God, caused death to die in his dying on the cross for sin and in his raising from the grave in victory. Now he invites all men to share in his victory by uniting themselves to him by faith, by believing in him, by, in Paul's words, calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. See, our purpose, our mission, is to advance the kingdom of God through prayer and through preaching. Paul makes a very practical point in Romans 10. People can't believe in Jesus if they have not heard of Jesus. The way God has determined to make his work of salvation known in this world is through his church. That's through you. The way that God has chosen to save men and women and children from the death they deserve is by you proclaiming the cross of Christ. There's no plan B. You're it. Christian, at some point in life, someone preached the gospel to you. You heard, you believed, you were saved. You were saved from your sin. Out of the world, into the church, and onto mission. Those Jesus has saved share in His mission. They share in His death. They share in His resurrection. They share in His fellowship. Are you sharing? Our mission is the same as Jesus was. To advance the kingdom of God throughout the whole world. There are over a billion people on earth that have never heard the name of Jesus, and when they die, they pay the penalty for their sins. They are justly sentenced to an eternity apart from our glorious God because they have not believed in Jesus, because they didn't have the chance, because no one told them. This should pierce your hearts. Church, this should make you weep. There are people that do not know Jesus. They're the living dead on their way to ultimate death. What are you doing about it? We've been sent to make disciples of all nations, not just friends and family though they are included, not just the town we live in, though it is included, all nations, all towns. How are you moving to be obedient to God's will for you? I mean, His will is not lost. The will of God is for you and me to give our lives urgently and recklessly to making the gospel and the glory of God known among all peoples. How are you doing it? Let me, let me give you four practical ways we can work together towards reaching the lost in our community, in our families, and in the world. Four, real quick, practical ways. The first way is displaying, it's displaying, it's loving one another. Jesus says that the world is going to know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Now, the church is called to be a display of God's glory, an instrument of his mercy. And so we're able to make the lordship of Jesus Christ known among those that come through our doors by how we love one another. Are you loving? Are you being a part of God's church here? Are you a part of the fellowship? Are you loving one another? Do people see the glory of God displayed in your life? Second, praying. We can pray for our missionaries. We can pray for the peoples of the world. You can pray for specific missionaries that you know or that someone else knows. Or if you don't know any, there's a wonderful website inside of the Southern Baptist Convention. You just go to imb.org pray. You click on pray and it gives you, you know, individual missionaries that are out in the field that you can pray for. And a list of ways that you can pray globally for the gospel. I mean, in other ways you could just pray for one country a week. There's a book out called Operation World. It's huge and it gives you a picture of a people group and it tells you a little bit about them and their culture. You can pray for them. Take, take five minutes a day. Pray through all the people in the world, all the people groups in the world. Are you praying for the lost and the mission of the kingdom? Third way is giving. Giving. You know that a portion of our, our giving goes to support missionaries through the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board. Maybe you didn't know that, but it does. A portion of our general fund goes towards that. Also, we, we when we recognize birthdays and things at the beginning of the month, a portion of our giving goes to missions. But uh, I think we can do more. I think we can give more than we do to missions. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I was new to the Southern Baptist world. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist, and so... Uh, the Lottie Moon Mission Offering that we do annually around Christmas time—I thought that was only once a year, but maybe you do too. I don't know. But that's actually a whole all year round. You can give to Lottie Moon, and that money goes directly to missionaries, sponsoring people that are going out and preaching the gospel to people that have never heard it before, going to all nations. You can give to Lottie just in the four line on your check. Right, you make out the check to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, and in the four line you write Lottie Moon. You can give to missions. I think maybe we ought to consider giving something up in order to give to missions. Maybe give up one of the times you go out to eat during the month. Give that money to missions. Have you thought about how you can sacrifice practically to give to the mission of God? Or are you just content in your American evangelicalism? This soft, comfortable anti-gospel that just calls you to come to church once a week, look at look at your Bible, hear a nice message, feel better about yourself, and then go home and forget about it. The gospel doesn't allow you to do that. It calls you on to mission. Lastly, by going. By going. God advances His kingdom by using everyone to go everywhere. You can go short-term, you can go long-term, and you can make a huge impact in the world for the advance of the gospel. There are structures in place to help you participate and be active in missions. Have you considered going? To recap, displaying, praying, giving, going, all of us should be involved in these things. I heard an illustration. I'm probably going to butcher it here because it's not in my notes. And, and there's a voice in the back of my head that says, stick to the script. Uh, but but uh, it's, it's as if there is a well that's very deep. And somebody has to go down into the well to get the water because we don't have a bucket. But all we have is two people and a rope. Missions is kind of like that. Somebody has to go into the well and somebody has to hold the rope. The rope. And there's going to be times where the rope will rub against your hands if you're the one holding it. There's going to be times that you hit your head on the way down into the well. You get some burns around your stomach as the rope holds you. But either way, there will be scars. Being a Christian requires sacrifice. It should cost you something. Advancing the kingdom of God will cost you something. You need to be involved in missions, whether it's going or giving. Either way, there should be scars on your hand. You need to hold the rope or you need to be on the other end of it. We all should be involved in advancing the kingdom. Friends, it's time to move to Jesus so we can move like Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, we want you to know that we're glad that you're here. And our prayer is that you've heard and believed the gospel this morning. And if you've decided to follow Jesus, I would love for you to to come forward as we sing the last hymn. Talk to me about it then or or maybe after. What it looks like to to be a Christian and follow Jesus. Christian, I, I challenge you this morning to resolve to be in fellowship with God by prayer. To resolve to advance the gospel by promoting its proclamation, not only in our own town and in our own families, but in towns around the world, in the next town. I just want to end our time together by reminding you that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That we will find ourselves most satisfied in him when we move to be like him, to be like Jesus. This is what we exist for. It's what we were created for. To glorify God by enjoying Him. We glorify God by being obedient to His Word. And we're obedient not because it's an obligation, but because it is our desire, our delight. It's an affectionate obedience. We forget ourselves and revolve our lives around God. And it's in losing our lives that we find them that we discover what it is to be truly alive and truly satisfied. She pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that you have chosen us as the vehicle by which you will make your name known to all nations and to all people. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is advancing even this day and that it is unshakable and unbreakable. And that despite the darkness that exists in the world despite the evil that exists in the world, ultimately you kill the dragon. Death dies. Life lives. And your people live in you, in your kingdom. Father, thank you for this great call, this great mission. Don't let us lose sight of it. Don't let us forget it. Help us to live out the gospel, and be a part of advancing your kingdom. Help us to display your glory. Amen.